Welcome to the Hillside Church Denver podcast, the home for content from Hillside Church in Denver, Colorado. Hillside exists to help people belong to Jesus people, believe in Jesus, and become like Jesus. And we hope that what you hear today does just that. Go to hillsidedenver.org for more information about this community of Jesus followers. And if you're in the Denver area, we would love to welcome you in one Sunday morning. But for now, on to the pod. We are continuing on in our series, Gather. We're talking about the gathered church why we gather as a church, what is important about gathering. Last week we talked about the feasts of Israel, these seven feasts, which are really three high holy days that you go to Jerusalem and why God called people to do that and what it means for us as the church. Today we take a look at the very first gatherings of Christians in Acts chapter 2. And so Terry's going to come and read the scripture for us. I'm trying to buy him time to grab his Bible real quick because Terry was being friendly. Um, <laughs> but Terry's going to come and read the scripture for us, and then we'll jump in. Thank you. Good morning. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and signs were being performed through the apostles. Now all the believers were together and held all things in common. They sold their possessions and property and distributed, distributed the proceeds to all as any had need. Every day they devoted themselves to the meeting, to meeting together in the temple and broke bread from the house to the from house to house they ate their food with joy and sincere hearts praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people every day the lord added to their number those who were being saved the word of the lord thank you terry thanks be to god um, as as christians we believe something really weird it may not sound weird when I say it to you if you've grown up in the church or even if you've grown up in Western culture because so much of our cultural mindset is founded upon this idea. But as Christians, I want you to understand that what we believe about the foundation of the universe is actually really strange in human history and even strange in all the world today. And that is we believe that the very foundation of all creation, of all the universe, is love. And that that manifests itself in a loving relationship in the triune God, in the God who is three in one. Now, that's a weird statement. The Trinity is like the doctrine that no one can get their hands on, no one can fully understand. You can't properly articulate it because it's a divine mystery. How can three beings or three persons be one being? Not three beings, that would be multiple gods, right? Three persons in one being. As Christians, we believe in the Trinity, we're the only people in all the world who do. And I'll argue, this, this is where the offensive part may come in, I'll argue that only Christianity can teach that the world is founded upon love. Because only Christians believe in a God who is a community in himself, and love cannot exist apart from community. One single being 
could never be loving because there would be nothing else to love. Love is something that we do and that we're disposed to something outside of ourselves. And only God can be love in his very essence. Only God can define love. Only a triune God, a God who is three in one, can actually be love in his very being, in his very essence, at his very core. And out of that love then, out of the love that exists between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, our triune God who's existed from all of eternity past, out of that love came the world. As Christians, we believe that that the love of God was so powerful, so potent, that it overflowed into creation. And God created a world out of love to be loved and to love. All of creation, all of existence is founded upon love and founded in love. And only the Christian God can found a world in love because only the Christian God is love in his very essence and being. The three-in-one God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit who have loved each other perfectly from time eternal past and will continue to into eternity's future. And it's because we believe that God is love and God is a community that we believe we can't live without each other. Now, I've done a lot of study. I've done a lot of reading. And I'm not trying to put down other people or their beliefs. But at the end of the day, I can't find a good reason to love people and especially to love the weak and the oppressed apart from the story of Jesus. I can't, in all the world, I can't find another sure and steady foundation from which I could argue that we ought to love one another as ourselves and especially love people who bring nothing to the table for us. Except the story of the God who in Jesus Christ came to us when we could offer nothing to him and chose to love us apart from anything we could do on our own. That is the foundation of Christian love. That is what we believe is the foundation of all human existence. And that's the story that we tell when we gather together. That's the story upon which our life and our community is founded. And if you're a Christian today, I hope you believe that. And I hope that you believe that's why you're here. I hope you believe that's the best story that makes sense of the world. It's why we believe it. You shouldn't believe anything that you don't think makes sense of the world, that makes sense of the purpose of existence. So that's why we gather here. We gather here to be rooted in that story, in the story of the God who is at his center love and whose love overflowed into creation and who chose to pour out his love on his enemies when we could do nothing to earn it or gain it. That is the good news of our God in one sentence. Now we could go home. Right? That's all we really need to say. But you know I can't do that. So we're taking a look at Acts chapter 2 today. Here's what's going on. Terry read for us this description of the earliest Christians. The description of the very first church gathering in the city of Jerusalem. But you need to know what was going on before that. You got to know why we get this picture of the church in Acts. Now, the Apostle Peter, kind of the the lead apostle at this point, the guy who's kind of been tasked with taking up the other apostles and leading them, probably because he was the oldest, probably because he was, well, 
maybe he was the most mature, maybe just he was the oldest, right? We know he was married, he probably had kids, most of the other disciples are like teenagers at this point, right? And so Peter stands up on the day of Pentecost. Now last week, if you were paying attention, Pentecost is one of those feasts of Israel that God prescribed for his people back in Leviticus 23. It's the Feast of Weeks. It's 50 days after Passover, at the end of the harvest season when everyone gathers together in Jerusalem to celebrate the harvest. This is probably the most joyous of the feasts because you're celebrating the work being done, the work being completed. You're celebrating the harvest coming in. People have gotten their income for the year. People have gotten their their harvest for the year and they're, they're excited and they're celebrating. And at this feast, people from all over the Roman Empire, Jews from all over the Roman Empire, came to Rome, came to Jerusalem, not Rome, came to Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of Pentecost, the Feast of Weeks, to celebrate the harvest. And at that gathering, the Apostle Peter stands up and he begins to preach a sermon. And in the sermon, he tells the story of Jesus. He tells the story of his rabbi who only weeks before had been crucified and rose again. And at the end of that sermon, all of these Jewish people from all over the Roman Empire come to Peter and they say, what do we need to do? Like, there's something stirring within me. This story that you've told me makes sense of the world. It makes more sense than the story I've been believing. So what do I do in response to it? And that's where Peter says, repent and be baptized. Repent and believe the good news. Repent, that means turn away from what you've thought before and instead turn to Jesus, the one I've just told you about. And be baptized, be born anew, be washed clean, and then live for Jesus. This is what we do in response. And we read that at that sermon on the Feast of Weeks, 3,000 people gave their, put their faith in Jesus became followers of Jesus. And immediately after that, we read about what that community was doing. That's what Terry read for us. That's the text that we're in today. Immediately after that, we see, what are these early Christians doing? What do they do together? And that's where we come to our text. So in 42, we read that they, that is the followers of Jesus, who are still in Jerusalem, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. These are the four things that followers of Jesus did when they gathered together right at the very beginning. And these are the four things that, honestly, the church has been doing and should be doing all the time. Now, I want you to understand something, though. This is not a church, formal church gathering. This is not a Sunday morning service. This is not something that was organized and put on for people. This is just what they did. They loved Jesus, and because they loved Jesus and one another, they wanted to be together. And so they gathered together. This wasn't a formally organized thing. This wasn't some like, show up here at 10 a.m., and then by noon we'll promise to have you home for lunch. Right? This was an overflow of the love that people had for Jesus and one another They said, because of this love, because we have been saved, because Jesus has come for us, now we just want to be together. And when they got together, this is what they did. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Now, what were the apostles' teaching? They were teaching what Jesus had taught them. It's that simple. What did the apostles have to teach? 
all the things Jesus had been telling them while they were walking with and living with him. They were following him as a rabbi. They were learning to become like him. They were being rooted in his teaching and in his lifestyle. And so as this church gathered, as the people got together, they devoted themselves to what the apostles were teaching about Jesus. What did Jesus say? What did he tell us to do? How did he show us to live? How did he fulfill the scriptures that we already had? And so they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They devoted themselves to fellowship, to being together. This is really nothing more than being together and loving each other. That's what the fellowship is. It's just hanging out. It's just being together. And, and listen, there were Jews in this gathering from all over the Roman Empire. These people didn't always like each other. They didn't always get along. These people had different cultural customs, different languages. They were brought together across cultural lines. Yes, they were Jewish, but that's pretty much all they had in common. Even the way that they had practiced Judaism was different from place to place. These people were not homogenous. They weren't one and the same. They weren't all exactly alike. And you bet when they gathered for fellowship, there was arguments and there was disagreement and there were boundaries that got crossed. There was discomfort as people from different cultures and different places gathered together, but they had Jesus. They had the one thing that pulled them together and tied them together, which is why later in the book of Ephesians, the apostle Paul can say that Jesus has once for all broken down the dividing walls between us, between Jews and Gentiles and people from different places and people of different racial backgrounds and people who speak different languages and people who have experienced life differently. Jesus has torn down the dividing walls. And so our fellowship does not mean that we won't have disagreements. It doesn't mean that you're going to absolutely like everybody you sit next to. It doesn't mean that you're going to find something in common with everybody in the room. It means that we have Jesus in common. And he overcomes all walls between us. All barriers between us. He breaks those down and draws us into his community. And because of him, we can find fellowship with people who by all natural rights we ought to hate or who we have nothing in common with. That's the story of the world. There are those people and there's us. In Jesus, he says, there's only an us. There's no longer a them and us, them and me. So they devoted themselves to the fellowship. They devoted themselves to the breaking of bread. Now, this is more than just a meal. Breaking of bread through the rest of the New Testament becomes a shorthand for communion, for the Eucharist, for the practice of coming to the table and partaking of the body and blood of Jesus. They've listened to the apostles' teaching, and they're discussing it among themselves. They're fellowshipping together, and they come and they devote themselves to Jesus in this family meal, in what might be called the love feast later in the New Testament. They come together, and they are rooted in, in and reminded of what Jesus has done for them in the breaking of bread as they come to the table and take communion together. So they're devoted to the breaking of bread and they're devoted to prayer. Now this is probably the place where most of our churches fall the most short. If you were to tell somebody what are the four things we do as a church every single time we gather and that we love doing, would you include prayer in that? Would you include prayer in that list? I think a lot of us probably wouldn't. 
It's not the thing that we delight in the most. It's not the thing about our church that we love the most. When you're trying to like invite somebody to a church service and make it sound, sound uh, attractive to them, do you say, we spend a lot of time praying? <laughs> Probably not. It's the thing that so many Christians overlook. And yet, when God sees fit to put down in his word what the first church and first Christians did together, he says they prayed. These people prayed. Now, if we gather as the church and we neglect to pray, it's like putting God on a bench in the corner. It's like putting him on a stool in the back and not letting him speak, not letting him be present. You know, he's there, but he's not really part of what's happening. Can you imagine going to a party, like having, let's, let's say you throw a party in your own house and everybody comes and they have a great time and no one speaks to you the entire time they're in your house gathered. How would you feel? How would that be? And yet that's what some of our church services are like. We've come to God's house, gathered as his family and his people. We want to have a good time together, but we don't talk to him the entire time. But prayer was one of the essential things that God's people did when they gathered because they recognized he is the one who's called us together. He's the one who's invited us to this party in the first place. He ought to have the biggest voice in the room. He ought to be the one we gather around. He ought to be the center of our attention the entire time. That's why they pray. That's why we pray. And so they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. And church, we would do well to remember that and to devote ourselves to that, not only when we gather for a constructed time on Sunday morning, but when we gather as Jesus followers any and every time. We would do well to remember that these things flowed not out of some construction that they were handed, some liturgy that people were told to follow. They came out of the overflow of people's hearts as they gathered together, worship Jesus, and fellowship with one another. This is where we ought to want our hearts to be. Hearts rooted in the apostles' teaching and fellowship to communion and to prayer to being together with one another and with God and letting him be the loudest voice in the room, the loudest voice in our lives all the time, every time. And so we see this, this synopsis of what the people were doing, and then we get a description of what that looked like. Then the writer Luke here goes on to tell us what it actually looked like when they gathered. What did it mean that they were doing these things? How did it manifest itself in this community? And we learned that they were radically generous. They were just giving and giving and giving and giving. They sold all their stuff. They held it in common. They made sure everybody had everything that they need. Every day they devoted themselves to meeting together in the temple. They broke bread from house to house. They ate their food with joyful and sincere hearts. This community overflowed in love where they were marked out by God's power at work among them. We read, everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and signs were being performed through the apostles. God was present. God's power was there. People were seeing wonders and signs. They were being healed. God was present and doing stuff among them. Now, maybe in our community, it doesn't look exactly the same. Maybe the miracles and the signs aren't exactly the same. Maybe they should be, and we just haven't pursued that. We haven't asked for it. 
or maybe in our community, the healing and the provision that take place miraculously look a little bit different. But in any case, the people of God, when we're gathered, ought to be marked out by the power of God demonstrated among us. Demonstrated in our radical love for one another. Demonstrated in the breaking down of walls. Demonstrated in the way that we provide for each other and in the radical generosity of our community. Demonstrated in ways that are totally countercultural to the world around us. But the power of God marked out this community. Signs and wonders were being performed by the apostles. And generosity marked out this community. All the believers were together and held all things in common. They sold their possessions and property and distributed the proceeds to all as any had need. Now, this wasn't a compulsion. This wasn't some law that came down that said, hey, you got to sell all your stuff and we're going to hold it together. This was not a requirement of being part of the community. It's what people did when they learned how to love each other. It's what the heart was moved to do when people looked at one another and said, wait a minute, wait a minute, I've got more than enough and my brother over there can't eat tonight. I'm covered, I'm good. But that family over there is struggling. I've got all I need. But I see needs in my community and to them, that was unjust. Now I know we live in a world of private property where don't step on my property rights, don't step on my stuff, don't tell me what to do with my things, preacher. Don't tell me what to do with my stuff, pastor. And yet, when we are moved by the love of Christ for our neighbors in need, if we are not moved to generosity, we have to ask if we're really looking at them the way Jesus does. When we see ourselves doing well, with more than enough, and we see neighbors in our own community struggling to make ends meet, and we are not moved to compassionate generosity, we have to ask Jesus, am I seeing them how you're seeing them? Am I seeing them the way you are? Would you move me to generosity? I'm not trying to lay a burden on anybody. Lord knows it is hard to figure out what the right and responsible thing to do is so often. It is hard to know how to responsibly care for one another and be compassionate without, being, without hurting people, to be honest. But if we're not moved with compassion, we have to ask where our hearts are. If we're not at least moved to ask the question, God, what would you have me do with all that I have to love those who have less? Then we have to ask, Lord, am I looking at the world like you do? And then let him move us into places of deep generosity. They're marked out by feasting and gratitude. This is my favorite part. This ought to be our favorite part, right? These people got together and they just partied. They provided for one another, and then they had a good time. They were breaking bread from house to house. They're having meals with one another. They can't get enough of each other. Now, let me be honest. There are times when if we have an event on Saturday, I know people aren't coming on Sunday. There have been times when our leadership team has talked about, we better not put these two things together because if we do this at this time, then do we really want to ask people to come back on Sunday morning after that? There are times when we are hesitant to hold some event because we know, well, people will come to this, and if they do this, they'll feel like they don't have to come to this or they shouldn't be here for this time. The first Christians just love being together. 
It was a family reunion every time. Now, I understand we have obligations, we have things, we have things we need to do. We also need our rest time. I get all that. I'm not trying to put anybody down. But I got to wonder, what's going on in our community, in our hearts, if we don't love to be together? If we say, well, we can't have bowling that afternoon because that's the grand opening. People are going to be tired and have be worked. And Well, we, we can't do it on the grand opening Sunday because we need to do it on another day that's further away from another gathering so that people will actually come and do this thing and they won't be together on Sunday. If, if we have to take those things into consideration, I, I'm, I'm questioning, do I have a love for my family? How deep is my love for my family? Now, again, not trying to guilt anybody into anything. But the witness of Scripture is the followers of Jesus love to be together. It wasn't a burden to be together. And where it was, the benefits far outweighed the cost. I can tell I stepped on some toes with that one, sorry. I love being with y'all. And I hope that we're a community where we love to be together. Where being together does not feel like a compulsion or one thing to click off or some legal rule that we have to keep in order to stay good in God's graces and, you know, in Brandon's good graces. Like, that even matters. But we're a community of people who just want to be together because we love Jesus together. And we love one another. So they were breaking bread from house to house. They were spending time together. They were encouraging one another. They were fellowshipping together because love was the core of their community. Because love was the reason they had been drawn together in the first place by Jesus. And love was what held them together in their community. It was love that brought it all. And every day the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. People looked in on this community from the larger world. They looked in at what these people were doing, the ways they were caring for each other, the ways they were loving each other, and they said, I want that. I want to be part of that. And they were welcomed in. And they came in. And they saw what was going on. And they said, this is, this is different. This is wild. This is, this is crazy. You, get, you guys are doing what? This is what this community is like? This is what following Jesus is about? You, you mean you're not, you're not going to hand me a set of laws when I walk in the door? You're not going to hand me a set of expectations when I walk in the door? You mean I can come in here with all of my baggage and all of my stuff and all the cynicism that I got, and I can just, I can just be here? I don't have to leave it outside? You mean I can come in with my language and my culture and my background and my past and my family? I can come in with all of that and be welcomed and be loved? That I can sit at table with you? Now, this is what you got to understand to understand how, how radical this was. To faithful religious people of all kinds of stripes, but especially to faithful religious Jewish people, when you opened your table to someone, you were affirming their lifestyle and everything about them. When you welcomed someone into your home to sit at your table, what you were saying to the wider world was, I'm cool with this person. Everything's good with them. There's no problem. And here within the church, we see people opening up their tables and saying, welcome to my table to anybody and everybody who would walk in. That was a radical gesture. To open your table to people you previously would have disapproved of. 
to open your table to people who, who didn't make the cut. They didn't make the list. They weren't the most religious. They weren't all put together. But I'm going to open my table to you and welcome you into my home and into my family. This was a radical move. And so we see in these few verses the earliest Christians moved to love and generosity, moved to be together because their lives were founded on the love of Jesus poured out for them. Their lives were founded on the good news that God had come for them, died for them, rose again for them to bond them together in the unity of love, in the unity of Christ this community reflects the love of God himself. The love that exists between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And this community points to a future time. This community not only roots us in the love of God in the past and the story of what God has done. It doesn't just root us in the story of what God is doing now and the love that God has poured out for us in Jesus, it points us to a future time when all of those things that would divide us, all those brokenness in the world, all the pain and struggle will be done away with. And when finally we will fellowship together purely and honestly, and there won't be anything to divide us, there'll be nothing to disagree about, there'll be nothing to, to tear down relationships between us, because we will be in a pure relationship with our God and with one another when sin is finally truly wiped out from the world. And all those things that work to tear us down are finally gone. It points us to the future day when Jesus will come back and all of the sad things will come untrue. When all of the sin and the brokenness will be healed and will experience relationship with God and one another as it was always meant to be. With nothing in between us. Nothing tearing us down between us. That's the community that we point to. And so when we gather as the church, it ought to be a celebration of all that God has done in the past, rooting ourselves in the good news of Jesus and his story that makes sense of the world. It ought to be a celebration of what God is doing now, how Jesus has saved us, how he's called us together and called us out of our sin into this community. And it ought to be a preview of what heaven is going to be like when people from all kinds of backgrounds and from all walks of life will finally be together in the pure presence of their God, with no worries or concerns, because Jesus has already defeated everything that stands between us. Because at the root of that story that makes sense of the world, at the very root of that story of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that makes sense of all creation, that makes sense of the universe as we see it, is a God who looked down upon his world, looked down upon sinful humanity, looked down upon his enemies, and said, it's not enough for them to try and make it to me. It's not enough. It's not enough what we've done. I need to go to them. And so Jesus, second person of the Trinity, God himself wrapped himself in flesh and came to live among us, came to walk with us, and he came to let all the power of the world exhaust itself on him. Our God, looking down at broken and sinful humanity, saw all the things that were stacked against us 
and said, you know what, those things can't take me down. They don't have any power over me. They don't have any authority over me. All of the powers of the world and all the struggles that these people deal with and all of their sin and brokenness, it can't take me down. And so God wrapped himself in flesh, walked among us. And then at the end of his life, he said to all the powers of the world, go ahead and do your worst. He said to all of our sin, do your worst. And they let it take his life. They let it crucify him. And in doing so, all the powers of the world exhausted all their power. And on the third day, Jesus rose from the dead to prove that all of our sin and all the power of the world had no dominion over him and had no influence or power over him, that he was in control, that he's in charge. And he rose again as a deposit, as a down payment on our resurrection, as a picture of what we will one day be in Jesus. This is the love that binds us together. This is the love that calls us together. This is the love in which we live. This is the love that we are being molded into as followers of Jesus. This is the love that we pray defines every single thing that we do, every word we speak, every decision that we make, every action we take, every step of our lives, if we are followers of Jesus, is to be marked and defined by that love. That's who we are as a community. That's what the church is. That's why we gather, to display the love of our God, to point to the day that he will one day make all things right. And that's why we come to this table. That's why we come and we partake of the body and blood of Jesus. And we don't believe that the bread and the cup become the literal flesh and blood of Jesus. But we also believe that this is far more than a symbol that God is truly present in this act. Not as something magical, not as something mystical, but that God embodies this act, that he works through it to make us more like Jesus as we remember what Jesus has done and who he's calling us to be, who he is empowering us to be through the presence of his Holy Spirit. And so now, we're going to come to the table. We're going to partake of the body and blood of Jesus. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, broken for you. In the same way, after supper, Jesus took the cup and said, This is my blood of the covenant, shed for you. Come and eat.